Good morning, good morning, Pillar Church. We would uh, go ahead to our seats as we get ready to lift the names, Lord, on high. Let's have a moment of prayer as well. God said that his house is a house of prayer, and so we pray. Father, um, Father, I had the privilege of re-listening with my children to Pilgrim's Progress this week. And as, as I listened, in many ways, I was more excited than my kids were. But the reality of the burden that was on Christian's back just struck home with me this week. And the reality is, Lord, that there's burdens on my back that I refuse to acknowledge or I allow to buckle my knees and there are burdens on our people's backs that maybe they refuse to acknowledge and it is maybe buckling their knees. There are the reality of the burden, it's heavy, it's consequential, it matters. And there was nothing that he could do to get the burden off his back. And for a quick moment, I just empathized with, with that character. And I feel like this. sometimes there's nothing we can do to get the burden off our back. There's nothing we can do to change or shift the circumstance. There's a sense of hopelessness in that. A sense of responsibility that is too wonderful for us to deal with. And there's some fear in that for me and for many of us. And I pray that this morning's word would speak to that, that it would speak to me, that it would speak to them, that, that, that by the end of this, this message, they would know where to place their trust. They would know how, where to cast that burden. And that they would fall in love with you all over again. It's funny, Lord, when we're in the presence of the Almighty, every other circumstance becomes minute, becomes tiny. When we're in the presence of God, when we remember who you are, everything pales, everything shrinks, every ailment becomes nothing in the presence of you. And it's because I forget who you are that these burdens buckle my knees. It's because we forget who you are that these burdens weigh us down. Lord, would we remember who you are? You are God. Almighty rock, creator of the heavens and earth, maker of my body, my soul, ruler of the universe, controller of time. There's no one like you. All the other gods are 
are nothing before you. And yet you let us come in your presence. The most glorious attribute you, you have, Lord, in, in many sight is the fact that you are holy. You are pure, and yet you let the likes of us in this room come into your presence. It's the very definition of mercy. For we are not getting what we deserve for our sin. And not only do we get to come into your presence and not receive what we deserve, but we get to come into your presence and enjoy you and hear from you and learn from you and grow closer to you. It's the very definition of grace. We get what we don't deserve. Lord, you don't give us what we do deserve, which is separation from you because you are holy and we are not. But we get to enjoy you and know you and love you and be around you and and hear you and and be intimate with you. And that's grace, getting what we don't deserve. So we don't get what we do deserve. We do get what we don't deserve, Lord. (laughs) You're so awesome. And all we have to give to you in return is our worship and praise. That's all we got, this feeble praise to your name. And as the song said, Lord, in so many ways in our lives, you're just getting started. I pray that we would live to see the work of Jesus in this community with our very eyes. Sure, Lord, if our children get to behold it and be a part of it, Lord, that's a win. But if we could see it, Lord, that would be glorious. It would be an amazing act of grace and mercy for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Would you bless it and would you fill us with your presence? Since in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Pastor Canaan here. Uh, We're going to be continuing this morning in the book of Exodus. So go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word. We're continuing the series called The Crucible. Now, real quick, anytime you're reading a narrative, a historical narrative, that's what the book of Exodus is. It's a historical narrative. Anytime you're reading a historical narrative, it's best to put yourself in the story. So as we read this, I'm going to be trying to put you in the text because when you're in the text, you will see and feel what they've seen and felt. And when God is to be praised in the text, you'll feel it because you're in the text with them. And when you're scared and you're afraid and you're shaken, you'll feel that way because you're in the text with them. Then it'll give you proper emotions. It'll give you proper worship. If you will but place yourself in the shoes of the people in the text. And so this morning, try with me to place yourself in the text with the people. We're in Exodus chapter. Let me make sure we got the right one here. We're in chapter 15. I put 25 on my on my notes. That's wrong. Is that on y'all's notes? Dang, good on y'all, bad on me. 15. Now, before we start there, I just wanted you to get there. Uh, Some of us this morning, um, myself included, have a hard time with this word. It's It's a word called trust. Trust is hard. And I don't know if you've ever had to trust somebody, but trust is hard. Trust is complicated. It's multifaceted like the word love is. Love is multifaceted in many ways. 
you love your friends, you love your spouse, you love your children, and you love your favorite food, but you love them all differently, I hope, right? You don't love them all the same. Love is multifaceted. It's not a simple word. And similar, similarly, the word trust is multifaceted. It's not a simple word. It takes time to unpack the word trust. There's practical trust. There's relational trust. There's epistemic trust. The nature of trust is difficult to understand. There's ethic, are we ethically obligated to trust? Would you say that you are ethically obligated to trust? Don't answer that. I'm just saying. Would you feel that way? If not, then would that mean that you're, that would mean that you're not obligated to trust your spouse? Y'all see how it gets fuzzy all real quick? Because if you're not ethically obligated to trust the one whom you're closest with, what does that do to the nature of the relationship itself? It does damage. This is a, this is a, a, is a complex concept or idea. Do you have to build trust? Does someone have to build trust with you? Or do they simply have it and they have the opportunity to lose your trust? See, there's disagreement on that already. Just in this room, it's hard. It's confusing. It's, it's not simple. Now, I know that some of y'all are, are wondering, like, oh, Pastor Canaan done got all philosophical on him, right? And yeah, I got a little philosophical. I didn't, I didn't go as deep, y'all. It was deep. I was studying this for about four hours last week. Trust is a deep thing. But it's, it, it may sound philosophical, but it's, heavily, it's very practical. The concept of trust is very, everybody does this in their day-to-day. They trust something. And what we're seeing in this text this morning in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through the end of uh, verse 22 through 27, is we're seeing the people of Israel working through this concept, this complex thing called trust on the fly. They're working through it on the fly. And there are circumstances that are making them waver, shift, turn, twist from a simple, from a simple understanding of trust. In this text, we're going to see God calling both them and us to trust him with our lives. But God is the God who loves us and who heals us. So look in your copy of God's word of Exodus, 20, uh, oh, Exodus 15, verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out. Now, now hold on, hold on, stop, freeze. I Say something. Go there. Okay, remember I said that? Go there. Okay, you're here. Let's read it. Be there. Moses is in front of you, and he's leading you from the Red Sea. They went out from the wilderness of Shur, and they journeyed three days in the wilderness without water. Stop there. Be there. Israel just finished their celebration of praise to God for their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. Remember last week? They had just gone through the sea, and then they sang songs of praise to God, right? So they're fresh off the high of deliverance, and they're walking. You're walking. How long are you walking? How long are you walking in the text? Three days you're walking. Now, I don't know what the climate was here. Every children's Bible says that they're in the middle of a desert. It may have been, may have not, depending on the time of year in which they're moving. But they're traveling three days journey, and they have a very real conundrum before them. They're walking on non-paved ground, and they traveled three days, but they were without a vital resource. What was the resource that they did not have? You don't have water. Now, most of us in this room can't go 10 hours without water. 
but you just traveled three days on rocky terrain without water. Feel that. Now, let me paint a picture of what it looks like to go without water, how, how powerful the concept of dehydration is. If you know anything about dehydration, it's a powerful phenomenon. When you're dehydrated, you can't regulate your body temperature, right? And so you're shivering or you're hot. Your body doesn't know what to do. It lacks water. Uh, your joints actually begin to malfunction when you're dehydrated. So your elbows, your knees, they will buckle on you when you don't have enough water in your system. Your brain can swell when you don't have enough water in your system. Your blood pressure will sharply raise or sharply lower out of nowhere if you don't have enough water. Dehydration is a beast. And they just walked on rocky terrain for three days with no water. Feel that. That's just the physical stuff, though. See, what happens when you walk three days without water is something builds in you called anxiety. And you have anxiety because they don't know where their next sip of water is going to come from. You guys ever feel the agony of the unknown? You ever feel that when you don't know what's going to happen next? Like you have something wrong with your body and you go to see the doctor, but the doctor has no answers for you. But you know something's wrong. That's the worst feeling in the world. Most of us Tell me something bad, tell, find it. Just find it. Even if it's horrible, at least we know what it is now, right? Or how about you applied to school and you're waiting for that return letter to come in the mail, but it's a little late and it hasn't showed up yet and now you're getting anxious because you're wondering what the answer to the issue is. This is called the anxiety of the unknown. So not only are they dehydrated to some degree and they had no water for three days and their, their, their body's doing all kind of funky things, but they're having a mental issue with the fear of the unknown, not knowing what what's, what's going to come next for them. Where am I going to get water from? Where is the water? Is there any water? What would you do in this situation? What would you do? Think about this. You or the Israelites, right? They just left everything they've ever known in a very dramatic manner. And now they're living in the midst of not knowing. They just went from slaves of Egypt to bystanders of a spiritual battle. And now they went from doing the same old thing every day to new to seeing God do environmental miracles on the daily in the course of like a few weeks. Like they, they, their world just went upside down for them. And now they're finally free from oppression but they're on their own and they're not knowing where the next drink of water is going to come from. And I want you to be there. How would you feel in those circumstances? Could you still trust God if you were in those circumstances? Be honest with that. If you're them, would you trust God? The reality is it takes far less for most of us to stop trusting God, even though everybody in this room knows where the next bottle of water is going to come from. So we dare not shake our heads at the Israelites for having trouble trusting God when they just were delivered in some fantastical way that their whole, they've never seen their whole life. And now they're journeying and they're wondering, God, was really good because I got no water and they're dehydrated and they're walking on rocky terrain and they got elderly and babies with them and they're thirsty. We don't trust God over the little things. We start trusting God when the little things happen. <laughs> The little things happen, we got problems. They're having a, a literal physical crisis on their hands. 
What happens next is something that we all can easily relate to. It's the feelings of crushed, false, there's a feeling of being crushed by false expectations. Look at verse 23. And I want you to be there. Remember what just happened. You're thirsty. Now look what happens in verse 23. Be there. They came to Mara, but they could not drink the water at Mara because it was bitter. That is why it's named Mara. Now stop there. You're traveling with kids and the elderly. You finally come across a body of water. Imagine that. You're thirsty. Three days. No water. No bathing. You, you see this, this body of water in front of you. It's the most glorious sight you've ever seen in your life. The heat of the, the day has got you. Your blood pressure is up. Your ankles and knees are locking up. Your head's throbbing. You smell. You see this water. And you run to the water. And you open your mouth. And you take a gulp. And you darn near vomit it back up. It's bitter water. Y'all ain't there. You're thirsty three days, no water. You see water. You go to the water. Expectations high. Yes, yes. Drink. What's wrong? What's happening is bitter water. Bitter water is not good. Your expectations have been crushed. Drinking bitter water is like drinking ocean water, people. The sediment and the sodium content is too high for your body and your taste buds to enjoy or sustain. It sounds odd, but there's actually a record of sailors dying at sea in the midst of a body of water of dehydration. You see, your kidneys can't make the ur a urine that matches the salt content of ocean water. Therefore, you're in your body's attempt to get rid of the excess salt that you've just drunk, it has to absorb and suck out the water out of your existing organs and, and, and body parts in order to expunge the excess salt that you just drunk. It's the actual tool of your demise in front of you. You think that the water would, would, would hydrate you, but it's actually fueling you to be dehydrated. And it's the very thing you've been wanting and craving and desiring. You thought it was going to fix everything. And so you put your all into it and it left you worse. It's that vicious cycle that we put ourselves in all the time. It's the pain of false expectations. It's the pain of false hope. What do you think the Israelites are thinking at this very moment? Three days, no water. They come tomorrow. And I believe that they knew that water was bitter. And so they're sitting next to this big body of water, the very thing that they need, that they're craving, that they're yearning for. They're sitting next to it and they can't drink it. It's like they're being, they're being teased. You ever been on a diet from something? Somebody come over to the house, whip that bad boy out right in front of you? You can't eat it? Yeah, teasing. Now, now make that exponentially higher. Why would God do this to me? That's what they're thinking. Why would you do that to me, God? You know we're thirsty. How are you going to have us come across a body of water that we can't drink? Why would you do that? You start thinking to yourself, man, are we truly, are all of us here really God's people? Is he just punishing some of us? What's, right? Questioning, questioning. Are we truly loved by God? And if we are truly loved by God, why are we in this God-forsaken wilderness with no water to drink, but we're sitting next to a, to a body of water, we can't drink it? That's what's running through their heads right now. It's really good. 
Have you ever found have you ever found yourself in circumstances that have caused you to think the same type of thoughts? Man, I've had circumstances in my life that have caused me to think the very same thoughts. Like I'm like, God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? And that's that's some of y'all. If you would slow down in your life and think through, you guys have experienced pains and traumas. You've been teased. Things that you thought were going to heal you actually served to hurt you. And you're wondering, like, God, why would you allow that thing to happen to me? I need you to feel that reality. You see, that water was available to them in the short short term. But the long term... That quick fix would ultimately turn into the and seal their doom. You see, the problems of life tend to get worse when we try to apply a quick fix to them. Quick fixes often lead to shoddy results. You ever hire somebody to fix something at your house and he's done it in about 10 minutes? And you're wondering why it only took 10 minutes. Looked like a big job. Quick fixes often, often leads to shoddy work. And it's the same thing in our lives. We're always looking for the quick fix. If I just do this, if I just do that. Well, guess what? There's some things in life that are not a quick fix. There's some things in life that are painful to heal. Sometimes healing hurts. And sometimes you've got to endure some things in order to gain the lesson that God is trying to school you in. Some things take time and labor to resolve. Some things take thought and investigation. When relationships break, when sicknesses happen, when tragedies occur, they all take intentionality and time to make right. But we try to fix it quick. The issue is, in these big arenas of life, we trust in false hopes and have faulty expectations, and then they lead us to despair, just like the people of Israel. We put all of our eggs in the basket of quick fix, in the basket of here's that bottle, here's that that body of water that I've been yearning for, not realizing that that very thing will lead us to our doom. If we try to quick fix this, this whole thing will crumble. And now they have unmet expectations. And unmet expectations almost always leads to do exactly what we see the people of Israel do in verse 20, in verse 24. What did the people of Israel do in verse 24? It says this, the people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? They went through an ocean. I mean, I went through a, a, a sea of water. They traveled three days. They get to a body of water. Their expectations rise. Yes, they can't drink it. Expectations dropped. Now they turn to their leader and they say, what are we going to drink? Now, hear this. The desire for clean water is totally understandable. You should want clean water. Not a bad question. You want clean water. Clean water is good. Clean water is helpful. Cleans you out. But they're about to put the squeeze on Moses. Now, understand when you read this word grumble, this is what it means. It means to nag and complain in words, noises, or body language. They didn't come to Moses with, a, with a, a civilized complaint. Moses, we got a problem back here. We don't have any water. We got to figure this out. Nope. 
They griped, they complained, they yelled, they screamed. They started talking trash about Moses. And more than likely, they're probably talking a little trash about God too. If he's so high and if he's so mighty and if we're so loved, why are we in this circumstance? What are we going to drink? We are God forsaken now. He let us out just for his glory, not for our good. He showed the world what he could do. Now we suffer. Rumbling seems to be the default thing that we do when things get hard and we don't understand what to do. We tend to grumble. And grumbling is the language of a distrusting, unbelieving heart. That's when you grumble. You've all grumbled. You've all complained. You've all whined about things. And that's when you have a distrusting, unbelieving heart. And so when a leader is like, hey, we're going to do this, and it gets hard, harder than you expected because you had a false expectation, you begin to grumble. Well, I could have did this better. They were losing trust in Moses' Moses's ability to lead, and they were actively not believing in God to care for their needs. Again, this is us. This is you and me. I don't know if any of you in this room know somebody who's a complainer. Somebody who's always complaining, but I want to just bring it to, the, to light that it's, you're probably just as bad as them. You're a grumbler and a complainer probably too. You don't feel it because you think your concerns are valid. Theirs was invalid, but mine's is valid. No, you'd probably be grumbling and murmuring and complaining too. If you recall last Sunday in Exodus 15, we went through the first 13 verses and we saw the people of Israel singing their song. It was a song of victory, if you remember. It was a song of deliverance, if you remember. It was a song of love and provision for them. And then I challenged all of you, when you go home, what did I challenge you with? To go home and think back on the good things that God has done for you and to write your own song about what God has done for you. Because if you write your own song for what God has done, you can utilize that as a battle axe in the spiritual warfare against the doubt and complaining and grumbling that you would have when your expectations are unmet. If you write your song and you revisit your song, that will hold you fast. But they sung their song and they forgot their song. Because in their song, they sung of somebody who cared for them, took care of them, who delivered them. But now they're on the track of difficulty and they didn't expect it to be this hard. And they forgot about God's provision and they complain and grumble. They have something I call circumstance-induced vision impairment. It seems that they forgot who God was in that very moment. They let stuff get big, they let stuff get hard, and yet they never truly did this one thing. They didn't cast the burden to the Lord. Did you notice that? They got there, they saw they had issue, they saw they had need, but they never brought it before the Lord. And in your cross-reference sheet, this is the most important verse of the passage, but it's in Psalms 55, verse 22. This is what we do when we are in the midst of a wilderness and we're parched and thirsty and all of our tricks and schemes don't work. This is what we do. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. That verse is relevant for the people of Israel and it is relevant for you because you're guilty of trying to fix all your problems. You're guilty of complaining when you can't. You're guilty of blaming everybody else around you. 
but you don't cast that to the Lord. And if you used to cast it to the Lord, you stopped because you're inherently self-sufficient and selfish. You got this, but you don't. Some of us in here got relational problems with people. You don't got this. You got to cast that to the Lord. Some of y'all are sick and you think you know what to do for your body. Do good things, but cast that burden onto the Lord. Think about you and your circumstances, your life, all that's surrounding it. What's hard for you right now? Like, what is hard for you right now? And what are you doing about it? And the answer is you're probably doing too much right now. Sometimes we need to slow down and cast that burden first. Why? He says he'll sustain us instead of burning ourselves out. To cast your burden on the Lord means to actively place it before God with details and clarity. It means to acknowledge your painful, broken, and overwhelmed state before him. This is how you cast it. You ask God for help. You ask God for provision. You ask God for more faith to see what his hands may be up to. You ask God to sustain you during this time. But here's the thing that you do the most. You remember who God is and what he does. When you walk in remembrance, it shapes your future. They forgot their song. We forgot who God was in the midst of our lives and circumstances too. And so we don't go to him like he's almighty, all-powerful, the lover of our soul who cares for us. We don't go to him as if he's the one that gives us breath and everything good. We don't go to him. We wake up and we say, we got this. We are prayerless. We are self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency will leave you doomed in this planet. You trust yourself, but you don't trust him. That's real for all of you. In some area of your life, you trust you more than you trust God. Just be honest. I know that's me, and I know that's y'all. If we cast our burdens on the Lord, what does he say he's going to do? He will sustain us. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where we're told by Paul that no temptation, and I put in there no trial and no burden, has come to you except what is common to humanity. But God is in your cross-reference sheet. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But within the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. You know what God doesn't promise? He doesn't promise a quick fix to your problems. But he also never delivers shoddy work. Sometimes it takes time. Why haven't you cast that burden on the Lord yet? And if you used to cast your burdens on the Lord, why did you ever stop? Grumbling, complaining, and human ingenuity will always lead us to spiritual dehydration. What's beautiful in the passage and what's redemptive in the passage is if you look at verse 24 and 25, we actually see the burden cast before the Lord. Let's see it. It says, the people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? So he cried, this is Moses, he, he cried out to the Lord. Great job. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. Remember who Moses is. 
Moses is a broken man. He's a murderer and a stutterer. He's been shown before that he has nothing to offer before holy and mighty God. He's just a tool in his hands to be used for his glory. That's what Moses knows by this point. And so the first thing he does, not, to be, not because he's great, but because he's been broken, is to cast that before the Lord. He knows he can't lead these people in and of himself. And so he casts the burden on the Lord. And what does God do? He sustains his people. Y'all see the trend? You see why the, the psalm matters? He said, Lord, help! I can't do it. I'm I'm confused. And God shows him a tree. And he puts the tree in the water, and the water becomes drinkable. Guys, we need to realize that the power is not in us or our ingenuity. Notice, Notice that Moses didn't try to build a siphoning system that was built to take the bitterness out of the water so it could be drinkable. First thing he did, cast the burden. Not to say that building a system wouldn't be bad, would be a bad thing, but if you don't cast that mug before God first, you'll never see his hand work. You'll think it's you and your ingenuity. When it fails, you'll blame him for what you did. The power comes from God. And if we think back at our whole lives, we'll see that God is the one who's been sustaining us the whole time. Why don't we just go to him by default? The faster we can acknowledge our weakness. Oh, hear that. The faster we can acknowledge our weakness and our need for him, the more glorious it will be when we see God's powerful hand work in our lives. Because you subtracted your power and your ingenuity out of the equation. I know I couldn't. Look what God did. He gets the glory. You get the benefit. That's a good recipe. Because we will proportionately be more dependent on the God who is able. It reminded me of Ephesians 3.20 where it says, Now to him who is able. What is he able to do? To do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is in working us. As I read this, this story, we saw that God provided in an unconventional way. He said to put the tree in the water. Now, to be sure, this is a miracle and there's a lot of symbolism in what God did. But I don't want to waste, I don't want to talk about all the symbolism. You can read that in a book. I can refer six books to you. I want to point out here the fact of what God did through the miracle. He sustained his people. That's what's important in the text. They cried to him, he sustained them. They cried to him, he sustained them. That's what matters. Yes, symbolism, the water. It just went through waters, and God makes it pure. All this, no, he sustained them, but he did it in an unconventional way. And the first thing that crosses the palate of our eyes is the cross of Christ. It was through the death of the Son of God that brought us life. Who would ever think that through death, life would occur? You would think that death begets death, but in the, in, the, in the economy of God, death produced life. And it produced life for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And I want to ask you, both you who are Christians in this room and you who don't quite know where you stand, what are you waiting for in your life to trust in him now? He has given you a lifetime of sustaining and loving you, though you deserve none of it. He's blessed you with eyes to see. It's called his providence, hands that feel. You you have senses that move. You're healthy in here, yet you don't trust him to save your soul from the greatest threat to it, which is God himself. 
Your sin requires his wrath. Your distrust of him requires his wrath for you. You can't fix that. You can't fix it. And when you try, you're going to shake your fist at God like he's the one. And all your life is your ingenuity, your wisdom. You thought you had this. You thought you had made a way. You thought you were able to appease my, my, my wrath. No, you can't. And so what God did is something that you couldn't. He sends his son Jesus to take on his wrath, propitiate, which means to satisfy his wrath. He sent his son to do that so that those who trust in him no longer feel his wrath, but his grace and his mercy and his love. That's what he does for you. He sustains you spiritually, physically, holistically. So you can choose to trust Jesus for the salvation of your soul. You can trust that Jesus satisfied God's wrath for you. You can trust that you can't do it on your own. You can you can, you can trust that or you can grumble and complain when, it didn't, when what you did didn't work. Pick. You can grumble and complain or you can turn and trust. But you can't do both. You can be thirsty or you can be satisfied. In this passage, what's so amazing, what's so beautiful, what did God give his people for a lack of trust in him? Do you see what he gave them? grace. He gave them provision. He said, I'm not through with y'all yet. But he also gave them instructions on how to stay away from the evil thoughts and their unbelief. Look what he said in verse 25 and 26. Hear me. Walk, with this, walk this through with me. Verse 25, it says, the Lord made a statue and an ordinance with them at Marah, and he tested them there. Just stop real quick. Remember the circumstance. They're there at Mara. They, they, expectation high. Couldn't drink the water. Curse God. Curse Moses. Curse everybody. Moses cries to God. God says, drop the tree into the water. Water's drinkable. They are fulfilled. God had grace on them, just like he has grace on us in our unbelief. Many of us, you know what's crazy about Christianity? There's always an area in which we are not actively trusting God in. We're trusting something else, and that's how idols get into your life. That's how you start worshiping false gods. Because what this God can't take care of, you got to get something else to take care of it. We're always battling unbelief. There are some of you who straight reject Jesus. Consider your life up to this point grace, because you have time to repent. But for those who have already repented and trust their soul to Jesus, God is calling them to trust their whole to Jesus, every, every bit of them. And he has to make a, a, a statute before them. He, he says it tests them there. Look at verse 26. This is what God said. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Stop there. Be there, have the backdrop. The tree is in the water. God is speaking to you. 
And he tells you these things. It's like he's sitting down with his people for an intimate conversation. You see this there? It's like, you, you didn't trust me. You didn't believe in me. Let me sit you down. And it's almost like he's saying, guys, I know you've been through a whirlwind. I know that you've been through more this last year than your parents went through their whole lives, but I need you to know this about me. And he starts out by saying, I am God. That's for you. He knows, what he knows your circumstance. He knows the relational beef you're in. He knows the physical ailments you have. He knows all the psychological problems you have. And he's sitting you down. He's saying, I need you to realize something about me. I am God. That's what he said. I'm God. If you carefully obey me, do what is right in my sight. Pay attention to my commands. Keep all my statutes. I will not inflict any of the illnesses I inflicted, you, inflicted on the Egyptians on you. I am God. Now pause. It looks like God is asking them for obedience. And through, his, through their obedience, they're going to receive blessing. But behind obedience, there's always something more. There's always something behind obedience. Obedience is only produced by faith. Only. Obedience only happens when you have faith, and faith produces conformity. That's when you trust something, you conform to it, because now you know you can lend yourself to it. You have faith in your car's brake system. Right? And you won't hesitate to go 90 miles an hour on the highway and then hit a hard turn at the exit. Why? Why? Because you have faith that your brakes will be able to slow the car down, right? But when your faith in your brakes is shaky, it changes your driving behavior and patterns, right? Y'all know what this is like. So much so that you no longer take the highway, but you take the local route, and you start touching them brakes just a little bit sooner than you would once you get into that red light, because you know them brakes are shaky. Peep game. You conform to living in accordance to what you perceive to be the capabilities and limits of your brake system. Right? That's what you did. I'm going to read it again. You conformed to living in accordance with what you perceived to be the capabilities and limits of your brake system. So in, in essence, if your trust is weak, your behavior will follow suit. If your faith is weak, your behavior will follow suit. It always follows suit. Because remember, your faith is only good as good as the substance you put it in. So you put all your faith in broken brakes, you crash. Right? Many of us have conformed to living in accordance with what we perceive to be the capabilities and limits of God. And we don't trust him and we don't believe in him to take and be able to handle the woes and issues that we throw at him. Therefore, we don't put our trust in him. And here, we're just talking about water. The passage is talking about water. They're dehydrated, but the circumstances has elevated the realities of the issue, but it's just some water. And we think that God can't provide some water? We think that God can't heal the relationship that you got, the physical ailment? You think he can't change the disposition of your mind to give him glory in the midst of that? He's God. It's like he's sitting you down. He's like, I know what's going on, but I got to, let me just remind you, I'm God. Don't forget that. Our faulty calculator of what God can and cannot do changes our behaviors and patterns, and it messes up our relationship with him. And we know the depth of our trust in God by the zeal of our obedience. 
And so when he tells these Israelites to hear me and believe in me and do my statutes and believe my word, we know that salvation has never been through anything but grace by grace and faith. It's always been faith. Because your obedience will never come from anything but faith. No obedience equals no trust. But God is telling them, and he's telling us, you can trust me. He's saying, I am God. I know your pain. I know the struggle is real, but I can heal you. He's reminding them that he's mighty to save. He's powerful to be feared. He's awesome to be respected. He's trustworthy, and he's gentle to heal. Did you see that at the end of verse 26? He said, if you will carefully obey, my, obey, the, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight. Pay attention to his commands and to keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any of the illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Believe it or not, this passage shows the plurality of God, but that's for your theological heads out there. Because things start shifting in it. Conform to me by faith, God says. And let me heal those generational wounds you have. That's, his, that's what he's offering. What's ironic is that those wounds are largely self-inflicted wounds driven by a lack of faith. And that's our reality now. There are, there are wounds of trusting in ourselves and our plans rather than trusting in his plans. The self-inflicted wounds of the quick fix that we turn to that produce shoddy work, yet we blame God for it. The self-inflicted wound of, I know what God says, but this is what I'm going to do. That's y'all. That's you. That's you. Because when God says something you don't like, I know what God said. But I'm going to go ahead and try this first. I'm going to go ahead and do it this way. And then when it doesn't work, oh God, why? Self-inflicted wounds. The self-inflicted wound of being lazy and spiritually ill-equipped to stand firm. When challenged, when your faith is challenged. That's a self-inflicted. Read. Pray. God has given us an army of men and women who have written marvelous works. He's given us 66 beautiful letters to sift and, and deliciousness, to eat and drink and be fed with, to sustain us so that we may stand. But if we can't stand and the winds and waves keep blowing us over, read and believe. Read and believe. Trust. That's a self-inflicted wound. The proverb that our kids memorize all the time, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And then what's the promise in verse 8? You see that in your cross reference sheet? Verse 8 is beautiful. It makes the whole thing complete. It says, this will be healing for your body. Not trusting you is, dam dam is damage to you. Trusting you is damage to you. But trust in him and it's healing for your body. It's strength for your bones. It's good for you to trust Jesus. It's so good for you to do it. Trust him. Trust, stop trusting you. God's telling us to trust them. Not because when we come to him, we know he'll help us like a genie. That's not the... 
The gospel's not about us going to God. God shows his love for us in that he came to us. But you can't trust him. You in the muck and the mire and you stiff-arming him on some, ah, you don't even need him because I got this, ah. And he still comes to you like, nah, I know you need me. I'm going to hold you anyway. It's like a disobedient little kid that thinks he can walk. And you're like, bro, let me hold you. No, I got this. It's somewhat admirable. But then you look and he's failing. And then he gets all miserable. He gets hot. He gets flustered. Starts turning colors. And then he blames you because he can't walk. And he's angry at everybody else. But God's like, no, I got you. I'm going to hold you. And one day you're going to see that I got you. The gospel says that though we tried on our own and failed, he comes to us. But we can't trust him. We didn't even ask him to come. I don't know about you, but I was not looking for Jesus. Praise God he came looking for me. You were not looking for Jesus. You may be looking for God's benefits. You may be looking for some kind, of, some kind of existential truth somewhere. You may be looking for all kinds of things, but you were not looking for the Son of God who saves your soul. Admit it and realize it. Look back and remember. He came to you. You were lost looking for some kind of quick fix answer. That's why you opened the word. And God didn't give you a quick fix. He regenerated your soul by the power of his spirit because of the work of his son. But you can't trust him, though. God hasn't given you his wrath yet, but you can't trust him. It's indicting to me because I don't trust him all the time. I'm always trying to do stuff on my own. Romans 5.18 says, God proves. And if you look in your crossroom sheet, I put in there, what did he prove? He, he proved his trustworthiness. He did. How? He proved his trustworthiness and his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. He gave us the light. He gave us life and we didn't deserve it. Isaiah 53 says this. It says that Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion. Notice that he received something that we should. He was pierced, not us. He was crushed because of our inequities. He was crushed, not us. The punishment for our peace was laid on him. Where'd the punishment go? Him. Not you, him. But you can't trust him for the little things. He caught piercings. He caught crushing. He caught punishment. And what did we get in Isaiah 53, 5? Healing. Healing for our wounds. This passage is all about trusting God. Not forgetting what came before you. And trusting him for what comes in front of you. No matter the circumstance, take away your expectations of how God's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do what he's going to do in and through you. I don't know. I won't pretend to know. But know that God's hand is right there. And if you cast your burdens onto him, he says he will sustain you. Which means you got to let that mug go all the way. We give him just a little bit. Let's see if he can handle this a little bit. No, he don't want that. Give it to me or don't give it to me. And it doesn't mean it goes away. It doesn't mean that your circumstances change overnight. Like I said, some of these things take a long time. Some healing takes a long time. Hip surgery takes a long time to recover from. Knee surgery takes a long time. Every day it's pain, physical. Oh, you got to bend that knee so the tissue don't, doesn't heal the wrong way. It's pain, but it's healing. And by the end of that pain, you will walk again. But you know what we do? Ah, too much pain. Got to figure out a new fix. 
No. Sometimes it takes time. Be patient with the God who said he will sustain you. I didn't say he would. Psalm 55, 22 said he would. And what God has given you, he's given you the grace of space and time to remember what he has done. And that's exactly what he does in this passage in verse 27. Notice what, the, what happens there. They, they, they picked up and traveled again. Look, you, you, you moved. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. So God took them from this horrible situation. He gave them water. He sat them down and said, listen, I am God. You can trust me. Obey my word. I got you. And then he brings them to a place of plenty of water, plenty of shade, plenty of sweets. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to consider my kindness and goodness to you. Don't forget. Psalm 103. Not in your cross machine. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 3. Forget not all his benefits. The road through the wilderness is going to be hard. It's going to be treacherous. No doubt, no doubt their faith is going to be tested time and again. But in the midst of their journey, what's God doing to them? He's reforming a people. He's expunging the idolatry and the baggage of their past out of them. He's teaching them about his, about God's, his own character. He's challenging their faith in him. And he's pruning them of their sin. And that's what he's doing to us today. If we had the benefit of zooming out of our circumstances just a little bit, we would see that God is expunging the idolatry out of you in many ways. He's challenging your faith in him. He's shaping your character and he's pruning you of sin. He's molding you into the image of, of his son. He's bringing you into obedient, to the obedience of faith. He's stripping you of your pride and selfishness. He's reforming a people just like he's reforming them. He's reforming you into the image of his likeness. Chisel. Boom, boom, boom. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's a sensitive spot. But he's shaping you. He's shaping you. What does that give you? It gives you some hope. Give some hope. You can trust him. It hurts. You can trust him. Put the burden on him. Take it off. Put the burden on him. Jesus says, put the burden on me. Take my yoke. It's light. He wants us to camp by the water and remember his grace. If you didn't take the time last week to write the song of God's goodness to you, do that this week so that you will have a battle axe in the midst of the circumstances that you will face next week. If you don't, you will forget God. And if you forget God, you'll be doing it on your own. And if you do it on your own, you will fail. You will grumble, you'll gripe, and you'll blame him for what you did. Entrust yourself to the kindness of God. Cast your burdens on him, and he will sustain you. Father, I am guilty of not trusting you more than many of us in this room. Some of us in this room have been given talents and abilities, so much so that we trust ourselves in our talents, in our abilities, in our intellect, in our strength, in our ability, in our know-how, and we don't get up to pray because we think we got it. We don't give God our day because we think we got it. We just say, no, I got it. No, Lord, no, we, we don't got it. We think we do, we don't. I don't have it. They don't have it. We don't have it. We need you. We're in desperate need of you. I pray that the person in this room who is not trusted in you 
for the salvation of their soul would realize this day that they don't have it. That they've been searching for love in the wrong places. They've been searching for truth in the wrong places. They've been looking for what only you can provide in a whole bunch of, of, of empty tombs. They've been finding tombs full of bodies. Only yours is empty. Only you have answers. Only you have life, have life in the midst of death. There's only hope in you. There's truth in you. There's love in you. There's life in you. But we're looking everywhere else for them. There's forgiveness of sin and acceptance for you. We'd run around changing who we are depending on who we're with, trying to get accepted. But you know the intricacies of our heart, and yet you say, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. You say, come on, I know you messed up. Come to me, I got you. Come to me. And John 6 says, everyone who comes to him, he will not cast out. And I don't know why we're not taking that. Because we're selfish and we think we got it. Remind us that we don't got it. Remind us that you drive the car. Remind us that you give us the know-how to play the instrument. Remind us that you gave us the voice to sing. Remind us that you're the one who gives us the ability to do our jobs on a daily. Remind us that we need you. And would you do it through your word, lest you take away our ability and we cry in despair at what you did when it was really what we did and not trusting you. And you simply waking us up to something better. Trusting you is better than any talent we have. Oh, Father, forgive us, give us mercy, give us grace, and remind us to trust you. You are kind and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.